to turn this morning to the book of Mark, uh, going back to the book of Mark and some words and example that Jesus provided for his disciples and through his word for us today. Uh, beginning in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, we'll read a uh, what I'm sure is a familiar uh, occurrence and experience from the Lord's ministry, and then we'll we'll try to gather some thoughts from it. Verse 17 reads, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. Now, there's a lot in this that we've read. I don't know if we'll get to all of it this morning, but pray with me that the Lord will will give direction on on what to observe and comment on. So, we've already observed together in the past few months some, some lessons from Jesus' life and ministry, the miracles that he performed, the words that he spoke, and we also covered the fact that Jesus spoke many of the same things on multiple occasions. Just like preachers today, different audiences, he repeated the same message, and that resolves some of the perceived conflicts between order and, and the way things are presented in the different gospels, allowing us to understand that the record is still accurate. But this particular instance is recorded both in Mark and Matthew's account, and it's of this one individual who came to Jesus after having beheld Jesus' teaching and performing miracles and understanding and knowing, obviously, that Jesus was of God, if not the Son of God. This man was a person who had a measure of faith, a measure of belief in 
who Jesus was, or at least what Jesus was teaching. He believed in the authenticity of Christ as a messenger from God. We know that because he came running after Jesus. He knelt before him. He refers to him as good master, but he has a question for him. And the question is this. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Or in Matthew's account, good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? The use of the word inherit is interesting here because inheritance is not usually something we think of as being earned, something we work for. Normally, inheritance is tied to relationship. You inherit from your forebears, from your father, from your grandfather, from your rich uncle, someone who's got some connection to you. But this individual understands that an inheritance from God the Father, an inheritance of eternal life, must be tied to relationship, but the mistake is he thinks that relationship is something that has to be earned. And that's not a surprise because that's exactly what the tradition of the Pharisees had established. The way that you become a true child of God, it's not sufficient to be born into Israel. You have to be obedient. You have to keep the law. And that's the presupposition here. But apparently there's something in this individual that makes him think, though he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, maybe he hasn't quite measured up. Because notice the way he asked the question, Good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? He takes care of some housekeeping first. What exactly do you think of me? Why are you calling me good? Don't you know there's none good but God? There's only one good, and that is God. This points to the divinity of Christ because he was good. He was God. But he brings that to the man's attention, asking the question, why are you calling me good? There's none good but one, and that is God. Do you realize you're talking to God? But he goes on and answers the question. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. This summary of the Ten Commandments, but he consciously leaves out one particular commandment, that is, do not covet. And the man answered and said, Master, all of these things I have observed from my youth. And in Matthew's account he says, what lack I yet? Again, indicating there's something missing. I don't feel like I've attained worthiness of inheritance. I don't feel like I've attained this belonging yet. I feel like I'm lacking something. And then we read this, and Jesus, then Jesus beholding him loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest. One thing is coming between you and God. One thing is coming between you and this, this satisfying relationship you're seeking. One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And that represented the end of the exchange with this individual. That was an ask that was too great, it seemed. He was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. Now, in this text and group of texts we're reading this morning, let me say that in reviewing sermons, 
published of preachers of times gone by and reviewing commentaries on these texts, a great deal of effort is spent in trying to explain what the text doesn't mean. A lot of time is spent trying to determine whether this individual was or was not a child of God and whether he did or did not ever repent of this sorrow and ever turn from his idolatry. But I want to look at what the text actually says and the lesson the disciples learned and were taught from it. Now, we don't know conclusively what happened with this individual. We could argue for days over the turn of phrase. How Mark was inspired to say, the Lord looked upon him and loved him. But that doesn't seem to be the point of the text. The point is this. Whatever was going on there, whatever compelled this man to come and ask Jesus, what do I need to do to bring myself into relationship with God? It wasn't enough to compel him to obey the word of Jesus Christ when he spoke. And Jesus Christ was the greatest preacher of the gospel that ever lived. And he spoke absolute truth and absolute clarity. And the interchange with Jesus that day didn't bring this man to a place of repentance, of his idolatry, his worship of wealth, his worship of the funds that he had in his bank account the possessions that he had. Jesus said, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have. Now, the greater body of Scripture will instruct us that we can't come into relationship with God or Jesus Christ through any action that we might undertake to do. Inheritance is something that begins and ends with God himself. And relationship with Jesus Christ is a matter of divine choice. But this man didn't know that. And Jesus didn't fill that blank in for this man at that time. The man said, what do I need to do to gain an inheritance of eternal life? Jesus said, well, I'm going to look at and consider your behavior, who you are and what you do. Check off the commandments. Are you a good man? Are you doing what's right? The man says, yes, I've done all these things from my youth up. What do I lack? Jesus says, well, you're covetous. You're a man who cares too much about your riches. So for you, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Come and follow me. Well, is that going to purchase a relationship for this man? No, absolutely not. But what Jesus is doing is highlighting where his weakness is, where his sin is, where his susceptibility is. And that might be different for every one of us. And Jesus is going to point that out to his disciples here in a moment. You see, maybe you don't have riches and you're like the apostles saying, Lord, I'm following you and I don't have any wealth. That's not a sin for me. Well, good for you. What other area are you guilty of covetousness with? Or perhaps are you guilty of bearing false witness? Or perhaps are you guilty of just an ego and a pride in who and what you are? You see, we all struggle with different areas of sin and they're all equally bad and they all equally belie our profession of faith in Jesus Christ and relationship with him in Christ. Like we talked about earlier this morning, anything that comes between us and our consideration of who God is, how glorious he is, how great he is, and what he's doing is a matter of idolatry and it separates us from him. And that's what's pointed out in this individual. So Jesus says to him, you're lacking. You're lacking sanctification. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor. And you will have or receive treasure in heaven. 
and come take up the cross, the suffering, the sorrow, the burden, that which goes contrary to your desires and follow me. He was sad at the saying and he went away. He left, grieved, for he had great possessions. I can't ever read this text and consider this event without thinking back to the Old Testament example and story of the prophet Elisha. You remember when Elijah was sent by God after the juniper tree experience when he was depressed and despondent and ready to have his life taken from him. And God says, no, I'm not finished with you yet. Before you can die or before you can leave this world, you need to go and you need to anoint a prophet, you need to anoint a king, and you need to anoint a general. You need to go put these people in their places. You need to anoint them. And then I will receive you to myself. And that's exactly what he did. Well, the first thing that Elisha, Elijah does is he goes by the field where Elisha the Tishbite, or Elijah the Tishbite, Elisha the son of somebody was plowing. We're not going to go read it. Elijah goes by the field where Elisha is plowing and he casts his mantle upon him. And Elisha understands the prophet is calling him to a service to follow him. So Elisha says, well, I'll tell you what, let me go say goodbye to my parents. Let me go tell my parents what's going on, and then I'll come and follow you. And what does Elijah says? He says, what have I done to you? You do what you've got to do. I'm going on. So Elisha repents of what he thought of doing. What does he do instead? He chops up his plow, he burns it, he cooks his ox on it. And then he leaves and follows the man of God. Well, this man is told, sell everything you have, everything that might hold you back, everything that might keep you from my service and follow me. Take up the cross and follow me. But this man, unlike Elisha and like others who followed, remember Jesus came upon some fishermen. He showed them how to fish a little better than they'd ever done before. They pulled in the biggest haul of their life. And then Jesus says, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. This man said, no, I have great possessions and I trust too much in my riches. He turns away grieved. He doesn't follow Jesus. And Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Jesus says it's a very difficult thing for someone who's possessed of great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard. It's difficult. And the disciples were astonished at his words. I read this and I think of a modern country song. Some of you might have heard it. If you have, I'm sorry. <laughs> Money can't buy everything, but it can buy me a boat. It can buy me a truck to pull it. That's the mentality these disciples have. Money isn't the answer to everything, but money sure does make a lot of things easier. And maybe you've thought that and experienced that in your life. We want to trust in things we can see, things we can understand. And these disciples thought having wealth would be a good thing. And we think that often ourselves. But Jesus says, no, wealth is often a hindrance in our sanctification. It's a hindrance to progression in relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we trust in that which we can see. And the more we have, the more we have other than Christ, other than God to trust in. And that's a bad thing. You see, it's not wealth itself that is sinful. 
It's not money itself that is a problem, but it's the love of money or trust in money, trust in riches. And Jesus says this is a hindrance to the kingdom, to entry to the kingdom of God. How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? The disciples were astonished at his words. So Jesus explains to them a little bit more. He said to them, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, you can read commentators who will uh, provide you two or three pages on this expression, this turn of phrase. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. They'll tell you, well, there's a rock formation on a, on a difficult shortcut path where, where it's a short and small hole in this rock that it's a camel, a camel train can't go through because the camel can't squeeze down enough to fit through it. No, I think Jesus meant exactly what he said here. For a camel to go through the eye of a needle, like what you would sew with. It's impossible. You see, the argument made by some commentators is, Jesus is saying it's a very difficult thing, but it is possible. Because, after all, the camel can scrunch itself down enough it can make it through this hole. And Jesus is saying it takes a lot of work for a rich man to enter the kingdom. But Jesus' later words here indicate what he really meant. It's impossible. It can't be done. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? The disciples had a problem themselves with covetousness, with a desire for wealth, a desire for power. We see that repeated over and over again. The obvious example is is Judas Iscariot, the one who kept the bag. He's the one who said, how could this woman spend all of that money on incense to pour upon the Savior's head when we could have sold that and gotten money and we could have taken care of the poor, we could have done great things with it. He was the keeper of the bag. But but the other disciples reveal it as well. Their quest for power, their quest for wealth, their quest for something to gain in exchange for all that they had given up. Remember James and John and how their mother asked, can my son sit on your right hand and your left when you come into your kingdom? You see, as much as they were followers of Jesus Christ, there was a part of them that was looking for things they could see. And they didn't understand that Christ's kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. They didn't understand that sacrifice and loss was going to be a part of their lives until they died in his service. They hadn't grasped this yet. So they're astonished out of measure that Jesus would speak these words condemning rich people. Or at least the idea that the love of riches, the trust in riches, would be a hindrance to entering into his kingdom. So they ask and say, well, if rich people can't be saved, then who can? They've got it easy. They have all the means, all the methods, all the instruments at their disposal. If someone who's a rich young ruler can't make it in, then who can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. This morning we talked about how with God all things are possible. God can do everything. 
We talked about Job, who was a man of great riches, who had all of his wealth taken from him, and yet still he blessed the name of God. And he finally learned God can do everything. And nobody can answer against him, reply against him, question him. And all should trust in him rather than in what they have. Well, Jesus says with men it is impossible. It's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. We're talking about the salvation of souls. With God, it's possible. This young man came saying, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer was, you can't. You can't. If it was that simple, Jesus said, go sell all you have, give it to the poor. He would have done it, right? He didn't. Jesus was the greatest preacher ever. He communicated everything clearly. And yet so many rejected him. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. The Apostle Paul, writing in the Corinthian letter, opens up by declaring the the glory of, of the use of the gospel to bring knowledge and to bring salvation. He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Many people understand preaching to be a simple explanation of what God requires or what God has done. That man can listen and learn and respond and hear And there would be no impediment to all the world being saved if they would just hear and listen and believe the gospel. The Apostle Paul here says it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. But then in verse 26, well, no, reading on ahead of that, sorry. He said, the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks' foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty." God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen weak. God has chosen foolish. God has chosen the base things, the things which are despised. God has chosen those who have no wealth, no power, no privilege to declare his glory, to declare his power, to declare his ability. This contrasted with this rich young ruler who turns aside 
and of whom Jesus says, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom? The disciples say, well, a rich young ruler is wise, he's well-educated, he obviously is able to see the power in the person of Jesus Christ. He obviously has heard the gospel preached and has heard it declared. And he's got no impediments at all to simply declaring faith in Christ. And yet, he turns aside and they're astounded. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom. And they say, who then can be saved? You see, the truth is, no one can be saved except God do the work. Jesus here is talking about a rich man. He says there's a great impediment to salvation. A great impediment to coming to faith in Christ when you're trusting in your riches, when you're trusting in your ability. Well, the same is true if I'm trusting in my knowledge, my education. If I'm going to study my way into faith, if I'm going to study my way into relationship. I'm never going to get there. There's things I'm not going to understand. I'm not going to be able to work out. If I think that through my own reputation, I'm going to be invited into the family of God. That's going to stand as an impediment. And amongst the disciples themselves, as we already mentioned, there was Judas Iscariot. One who was named among the apostles, and yet we find out was a devil. He had no part in the kingdom of God. With men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Having read the text there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the apostle writes and says, not many mighty, not many noble are called. I'm always reminded of... uh The words of Lady Selina Shirley, the Countess of Huntington in the late 1700s. She was asked what her favorite, uh, or what she was most thankful for in, in all the world. And she said, I'm thankful for the letter M. They said, what do you mean the letter M? She said, well, there's a verse of scripture where the letter M gives me hope. Where the letter M changes everything about the gospel. They said, what are you talking about? She said, I thank God that his word doesn't say not any mighty, not any noble are called. She said the word many makes all the difference. The letter M means I, I who am rich, I who am privileged, I who have power may be counted among those called by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that changed her life. She used her wealth, she used her power, her privilege in in Georgian England of the 1700s to establish an evangelical branch of the Church of England that actually sought to promote righteousness. You might have heard of William Wilberforce. He was sponsored, supported by her and her efforts. She said, I thank God that he didn't say not any. He said not many. With men it's impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. What we can take from this, what the disciples should have gotten from this lesson is that God will save everyone that he desires to save. And God does use means. God does use methods. But nothing can thwart his effort. Nothing can thwart his desire. God doesn't try to do anything. 
We also should should understand there are things that are impossible for men to do, even in matters so dear to our heart. You see, this man had everything going for him except a willingness to let go of his trust in riches. And we have people in our lives, and maybe we ourselves, are obstructed in our desire to serve God because there's something we're not willing to let go of, some crutch that we want to depend on, something that's more important to us than Jesus Christ. This man had an opportunity face-to-face to follow Jesus Christ, and he turned aside. He couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Before we move on past this rich young ruler entirely, I want you to consider at least one, if not two, rulers among the Jews who were in the same situation with Jesus Christ. You remember in John chapter 3, a ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus came and referred to Christ as rabbi, as master, as teacher. Seeking instruction, seeking understanding, trying to bridge the gap between the, the reasoning of the Pharisees and the priests and what he heard Jesus teach and saw Jesus do. He said, good master, good master. We know, we know that you are a prophet of God. We know you've come from God. Jesus says, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus reveals some great truth to Nicodemus, but what does Nicodemus do? He goes away and he doesn't follow Jesus on that day. Later on, Jesus is preaching and the Pharisees are are conspiring against him and seeking to destroy him and kill him. And Nicodemus speaks up in defense of the ministry of Christ. He says if he's not of God, he couldn't do the things that he does. And they silence him. And he does not follow Jesus publicly. Why? Because he fears. He fears the council. He feels the loss of position of power. We find also in John's account the story of one Joseph of Arimathea, a ruler among the Jews. A ruler among the Jews who believed the words of Jesus Christ, who believed in Jesus Christ, but not until he saw Christ die on the cross did he have the willingness, the boldness, to buck the society in which he lived, to buck the other rulers. And he comes forth offering his own grave for Christ to be buried in. Missed opportunities to follow Jesus Christ, to suffer with Jesus Christ while he lived and to walk with him and follow after him. We don't know what happened with this young ruler, but we know that he went away grieved when he could have followed Jesus Christ. I don't know if you noticed this. Jesus said to his disciples, what? Come and follow me. He said that to to, uh, Matthew as he said at the receipt of customs. He said that to Peter and Andrew and James and John as they fished. He said that to Philip, to Nathaniel. He said, come and follow me. And they followed him. Well, to this rich young ruler, he said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come Take up the cross and follow me. And this man said, no. He walked away. He was grieved. 
With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And then opportunistic Peter, speaking for the other apostles, no doubt, began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. We all love to focus on the sins that we don't think are our own. It's easy for poor people to complain about rich people. It's easy for those who are obsessed with the pursuit of the dollar to complain about the sins of those who steal, to complain about the sins that are not their own. So Peter is trying to internalize this lesson, trying to understand what the Lord is teaching. You see the disciples focus on riches when they're astounded and they say, well, who then can be saved if not a rich person? This is what they're desiring, what they're striving for. But Peter sees an opportunity and he says, well, Lord, we have left all. We've done what you're telling that man to do. We've left all and we have followed thee. In Matthew's account, he says, what shall we have therefore? What are we going to get for it? And Jesus answers and says, verily I say unto you, there's no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. So much in Jesus' response here. The first thing is he discounts Peter's claim. Peter, you haven't gotten the, the short end of that deal. You didn't leave that much compared to what you've gained. And that's something we all should be able to apply in our own consideration. If we follow Jesus Christ, whatever it is we've left, it wasn't really that much. It wasn't really that great. You know, what did Peter leave? Well, we know Peter left behind a fishing practice where he had to probably get up around 3 or 4 every morning and work hard until 9 o'clock every night. He had to start by deploying his nets and take the boats out into the sea where they would work hard and they would fish. And sometimes they would fish all night and they would never get anything for it. They'd then have to drag the nets onto the shore and pick out all of the pieces of, of coral or rock or whatever trash they gathered up in the nets, they'd have to clean the nets and dry the nets and get them ready for the next day's work. Peter left behind probably a very small and menial shack or a hovel that he dwelt in. He left behind a wife and perhaps some children to follow Jesus. But Peter was a first-hand witness the most miraculous ministry the world will ever see. Peter heard the words of God being spoken by God with us. Peter sat at the feet 
of the Son of God. Peter was there to hear his words over and over again. Peter was there when Jesus asked, Who do men say that I am? And Peter had the privilege of saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter was taken by Jesus when he entered into the house of Jairus where the daughter was lying dead. And Jesus left everyone on the outside except Peter, James, and John and took them in. And Peter beheld Jesus speak words of life and a young girl who was dead revived. Peter was with Jesus when he took him and James and John to the top of the mount we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And there he beheld Jesus transfigured before him. He beheld the glory of God. He beheld as Elijah and Moses stood and spoke with the Lord. He was rebuked of the Lord who said in a loud voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. Peter didn't forsake much for the gain that he had in the house of God. The other disciples, whatever they left behind, it was nothing. Whatever I've left behind, it's meaningless. It's pitiful compared to what I've received in the house of the Lord. And that's true of everyone who has entered into that relationship with Jesus Christ. When He calls you to Himself, what you receive dwarfs anything you've left behind. Now think about it. What's holding you back? What's drawing you back? Why, having followed after Jesus Christ, would you turn back to the things of this world? What does this world have to offer? compared to what you found in Jesus Christ? And sadly, the answer is, if, 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 I, if I consider that question and I have to struggle with it, it means I might not have truly understood what is in Christ. I might not really have that relationship I think I have. Peter says, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus says, no one, no one that has left their house or their family or their lands for my sake and the gospels hasn't received a hundredfold right here, right now in this time. Houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands. This speaks very much to the organism of the New Testament church. There's a reason we call one another brother and sister. There's a reason the scripture refers to mothers and fathers in Israel. There's a relationship that we have with those who are fellow believers that transcends any natural relationship. And anyone who has experienced that divide within your family where you're a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, but your loved ones, your children, your parents, your siblings don't believe in Jesus Christ or don't see the importance of that service, there's a sharp divide there. And you feel closer to your fellow believers than you do to the ones who gave birth to you or to your children 
who grew up in your home. How is that possible? Jesus says, you'll receive a hundredfold now in this time. Brothers, sisters, mothers, children. And he says houses and lands. What does he mean there? What a privilege, what a blessing it is. As Jesus sends the disciples forth to preach the gospel, he says when you go into a city, you go and you preach, and if they receive you, go into their homes, dwell with them, and stay there. You're going to receive houses. Have you ever had the privilege of, of having someone's home opened up to you when you're visiting in a place far from your home? It's real, it's true. When John writes to the church at Ephesus or the members of the church at Ephesus, he commends the beloved Gaius. Why? Because you've opened up your home. You've supported those who go forth preaching the gospel. You've made your home their home. And for everyone who is a servant of Jesus Christ in his church. What's a qualification for the deacon? A qualification for the elder? A person given to hospitality. Opening up their homes. Houses and lands. Brothers, sisters, mothers, children. With persecutions. With persecutions. Jesus never told his disciples... They would be free from persecution, free from hardship, free from difficulty. And the gospel never says, if you obey Christ, your way is going to be easy all the time. With persecutions. And crowning it off. And in the world to come, eternal life. Eternal life. The lesson we're not to get from the story of this rich young ruler is that if we'll sell everything we have and give it to the poor, then we'll get eternal life. Jesus isn't teaching that. But Jesus is saying that whatever we forsake for his sake in the Gospels, we'll never miss it a moment. And isn't that so true? When the gospel challenges you and me in our lives to let go of something that seems precious to us. When our understanding of truth causes us to recognize something we're doing is wrong. But it's something we enjoy, something we like. Or when the gospel teaches us a relationship is bad for us. Our friends are leading us into sin, away from Christ, and we have to cut off that friendship. And it's such a hard decision for us. It's something we struggle over. We want a different way. We say, no, Lord, this is too important. I can't let go of this. If following Christ in his gospel tells us we have to leave, leave our home where we're comfortable, leave our family, our friends, and travel across the street or across the world to serve Jesus Christ. And it's such a difficult decision. We struggle with it so much. Have you ever noticed, after so great a struggle, after so 
arduous decision when you finally let go and you finally do what the Word tells you you must do. You look back and say, why was that so hard? What did I really lose? I'm better off without that relationship. I'm better off in this new place. Jesus says, I say to you, no one has left without receiving a hundredfold with persecution and everyone has eternal life waiting for them. Another thought just on this this text and Peter's claim of having left all and followed Jesus Christ. As Jesus spoke his final words to his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion, I always find it interesting. He's talking to them about the comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's talking to them about the power they're going to have in communicating directly to God and making their requests known to God. But he says in the 16th chapter of John's Gospel, and ye, verse 22, and ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto ye have asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. What Jesus is saying here speaks very much to Peter's claim of having left all to follow him. Because what Jesus is saying is, while I was with you, you didn't have to ask God for anything. And you didn't have to provide anything for yourself because I had all the answers. I provided what you needed. And that was so true. Jesus always told them where they were going. He always provided food for them to eat. He always provided sustenance day by day. And they didn't have to ask anyone for anything while they were with Jesus. When the tax collector came around and said, it's time to pay your annual taxes to Caesar, Jesus said, well, go get a fishing rod and throw a line out into the sea. And when you pull a fish up, look in the fish's mouth and you'll have enough to pay your taxes. Jesus provides all things. Peter says, we've left all and followed you. What shall we have, therefore? Jesus says, you've already received a hundredfold and in the end, eternal life. So what do we gain from this lesson? The lesson is not about the eternal destination of this particular young ruler. The young man came and said, what can I do to have a relationship with God that guarantees me eternal life? And Jesus said, you're not bearing the fruits of a child of the king. Jesus said, you're not bearing fruit evidence of the law of God being something implanted in your heart. The man says, I've kept the law from my youth up. Jesus says, well, take everything you have and sell it and give it to the poor and follow me. Show that you put me first. 
that you'll follow me if it costs you everything. And the young man turns aside, having much riches. The question that should beg for each of us is what am I unwilling to let go of to serve Jesus Christ with my whole heart? And is my service to Christ merely a matter of checking off a list of legal obedience? Or is it a matter of prioritizing him above all things? And what does that say about my relationship with him? Is Christ first in my heart? We should learn from Jesus' statement. It's hard for they that have great riches to enter into the kingdom. And from that we should evaluate our own consideration of riches, of the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of reputation. And we should guard against an undue prioritization of those things. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean we shouldn't have wealth? No, it means if we have wealth, we should use that wealth in a sacrificial way for the glory of God. When God gives wealth to his people, he gives it to them so that they can use it, not so that they can hoard it. Jesus tells that story when he tells about the rich man who had uh, had uh, had barns and had fields. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to gain more and more wealth. And then I'm going to kick back and I'm going to take my ease. God hasn't ordained for his people to take their ease, but to work, to labor. And the wealth that is obtained is to be used for the glory of God and the good of his kingdom. And it's not a bad thing to give what we have to others. That's born forth in the early days of the New Testament church. You remember they were, uh, they were economically challenged because their Christian faith was causing them to be cast out of the synagogues and separated from the ability to do commerce and to trade within their communities. So what happened? Beginning with Barnabas and proceeding through the majority of the wealthy among them, they began to sell their lands and give the profits, give the, the produce of those sales to the church, laying them at the apostles' feet. The deacons were then given the authority for the distribution, and the church adopted an almost communal sort of existence. Why? Because they had all things in common. They shared one with another. Does that mean socialism or communism is the preferred biblical form of government? Absolutely not. But it means within the church, there's a fellowship that is like that of a family, a willingness to give of ourselves one to the other. And our attitude toward wealth should be that it's a tool, a tool given by God to work God's purposes and God's will. We shouldn't be covetous. We shouldn't hold on to things, hoard them up for our own use. But we should be willing to give freely. As one is freely received of God, one ought also freely to give. So that should be the attitude, the approach we have to wealth. Well, the same is true of, of reputation and of influence or power. Those should be used for good. If we have influence, if we have a reputation, if people are looking to us as an example, we ought to live our lives as an example for them to follow after and not teach or lead people astray. 
The Apostle Paul deals with that somewhat in the Corinthian letter as he talks about those who have perfect knowledge that they are free to eat even meats that are offered to idols because they're not doing any sacrifice. They're simply buying cheap meat in the produce section of their local market. But there are those who might see them who might not understand that and might think that by buying those meats offered to idols, they're doing obeisance to those idols and might be led astray by it. Paul's observation, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. Pay more money for your meat so you don't cause your weaker brother to sin. The same thing is true of any idol that might creep up in our life. What's an idol? It's anything that takes precedence over Christ and his obedience. And all of us have idols in our life. We all need to reform. We all need to repent. We all need to turn to Christ. We need to guard ourselves against the response of Peter, who looked at one sin of one individual that was highlighted by the Lord and said, well, I'm thankful I don't have that sin problem. We need to be careful lest we think too highly of ourselves, for the obedience that Christ has wrought in us. That too is addressed in the Corinthian letter. You see, they have all of the sins laid out for us in that one church. Why? Because those sins are present in every church. We all struggle. What does he say to the Corinthians? You are too puffed up. You're too proud. What hast thou that thou didst not receive? If you're like Peter and you say, Lord, I've left all and followed you, what shall I get for it? The Lord says, you didn't have anything that I didn't give you. You couldn't have left it if I hadn't given it to you in the first place. It wasn't ever yours. You see, knowing the God who can do everything changes our perspective on our place in the world and our place in his kingdom. And like the rich young ruler, we run after him. We kneel at his feet. And we say, not what must I do to inherit eternal life? No. But we kneel at his feet. And we say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And then, unlike the rich young ruler, we do it. The rich young ruler was told, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He could have said, yes, Lord, and done it. But no, he was grieved. He went away, for he was sorrowful, having much riches. When you say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And the Lord reveals to you in, your, in his word what you need to do. What's your answer going to be? I pray that my answer will be yes, Lord. And I'll do it. Because in obedience, in obedience we find great, great blessing. In obedience we find confirmation and evidence of belonging. In obedience, 
we find a great reward. Jesus says no one has left anything for my name's sake, but he's received a hundredfold. And we always struggle, we always struggle with obedience before we do it. But you know, I've never obeyed the Lord in any command, in any area of my life, and then regretted that obedience thereafter. Isn't that amazing? As hard as we struggle with obedience, with choices to do what's right, we never regret a right choice. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of regrets associated with wrong decisions. When I've known to do good, but I haven't done it, oh, I feel bad about that. I feel sorry for that. And I've paid the price for that time and again. But when I know to do good and I do it, it's always benefited me. And not without persecution, but always a blessing. And that's the lesson the disciples learned that day, and I hope that's the lesson that we'll consider today. The Lord, He is able to do everything. And those things that are impossible with men, like a rich man selling all that he has and giving it to the poor, like a sinner turning away from his own precious sin and renouncing that sin in his own body. Those things that are impossible for men are not impossible with God. Because with God, all things are possible. And Paul says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. If you feel like you can't do what's asked of you in the gospel, look to Christ. Cry out to him. Cry out to him and he'll give you the ability. You remember when Jesus encountered the man whose son was vexed with a grievous devil and the disciples had tried and tried to cast out that devil without success. And Jesus upbraided them for their lack of faith. But he turns to the man and he says, Do you believe? And the man said, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. When you feel your inadequacy, your inability, your weakness, remember this. God, he can do everything. And what's impossible with man is quite possible with God. Rely on him. Thank you for your attention, your prayer this morning.